Hello and welcome back to the Limbic Podcast. I'm Sonali Silva and joining me today to talk about this year's combined TSANZ and Respiratory Science Conference are Professor Gary Anderson, TSANZ Board Member and Director of the Lung Health Research Centre at the University of Melbourne, Associate Professor Lucy Burr, Cystic Fibrosis Centre Director at the Mater Hospital in Brisbane, and Danny Brazale, Senior Respiratory Scientist at the Austin Hospital and Australian and New Zealand Respiratory Science Vice President. Gary, the program was an ambitious one, tackling some of the biggest challenges faced by nations globally, from respiratory health in the face of climate change to fighting big tobacco and, of course, COVID-19, as well as highlighting important developments in genetics and technology. Tell us how it all came together. Well, we went into the conference taking a deep breath. We were in a very good situation because we knew that the quality of the program we had on offer had really attracted a lot of members to register. Um, initially, we were very anxious that we wouldn't even break even, but the conference has done very well for the society in terms of enrolments to attend, but also in terms of the superb content. And there's two years of work behind that. Uh, all, all this started where we convened the Melbourne meeting and put our local organising committee together with the society's conference uh, people. Andrew Tai has been absolutely essential in keeping it all moving. And we started to discuss this is two years ago. What would the theme be for the Melbourne meeting, which never happened because of COVID? So we discussed amongst ourselves and we said, let's be bold. It's an anniversary for the society. Let's go for transformative strategies in lung health. And that is not incremental benefit, but really big changes. And that was our starting theme. And that's informed a lot of what's happened in the course of the meeting. And then I think um, people, this would not be apparent if you didn't know the backstory, but we also decided as a leadership thing and as a policy that we would go for absolute gender equality in all tiers of the meeting, that we would make sure that we had as many women as men as plenary speakers, as chairs, as participants in all the, in all the roles. And actually we're so proud, we ended up with 54, 46 girls to boys. So it's a real, I think that's the first time that's happened in any major medical society in the world that we have true gender equity top to bottom. And it just reflects the incredible depth of talent we have in the society. And that really comes through when you look through the program, gender diverse and across career levels, as well as culturally diverse. There was also good representation from international colleagues too. Yeah, we took this theme of transformative strategies and uh, when we reached out to potential international speakers on that theme, they engaged very enthusiastically because, you know, medical research in every field has this periods of rapid progress and then periods when it seems to be stagnant. Things are never linear. They always come in bursts as technology opens new doors and there's promise and then there's a long period when things are worked out and it seems like nothing happening and then suddenly there are new medicines and we repeat the cycle. And judging by the program, and I know even in our own coverage of respiratory news at the Olympic, by all accounts, the field is in that upward cycle. We are in the lung field in a fantastic period now. We are coming to the next age of major breakthroughs in lung health. And with that in mind, I'm sure you were spoilt for choice when it came to picking the highlights over the weekend. Where do you want to start? Well, I think we could just have a, have a look at the opening symposium. Uh, that was to set the tone for transformative strategies. And we had three absolutely astonishingly good speakers. Uh, we kicked off with Peter Sturck, 
from the Netherlands, be very well known to many of the society members, uh, respiratory physician and also physiologist. And he had the concept decades ago of doing comprehensive omics, so profiling, molecular profiling of disease to break complex diseases down into smaller subgroups. And he also had the vision that we could sample the breath and do much better than the phenotests to develop new biomarkers and new ways of analyzing breath and spend decades on this. And this has gone, I'm so happy for Peter, this has gone from a concept people thought, eh, not sure about that, to FDA certified diagnostic procedures. I think we're going to see that breath stratification, which is non-invasive and can be integrated with point of care, where you sample the breath using an e-nose, so biosensors incorporated in an array, and a little device that's part of spirometry, that registers the signatures of the very low abundance gases and volatiles that are caused by disease, reflect disease, goes off to the cloud, comes back instantaneously with recommendations, and that cloud database grows and becomes more powerful in time. That's the reality now. And that has moved from concept to people already talking about doing breath biopsy for cancer predi uh, prediction. You can use this to discriminate particular infections it's being used to stratify asthma and COPD. And this is going to be a truly transformative strategy. So I had a thumping heart rate after Peter's talk. And then Carol Kelly brought us back to the practicalities. I mean, Peter's ideas took perhaps 20 years to realize from concept through the first FDA certification. Uh, Carol brought us back to how do we improve patient care now in terms of service delivery, nursing, rehabilitation, the healthcare systems that reach people immediately. And we should never neglect that bringing benefit now, not just molecular science for the future, but practical systems to help people now. And the evidence base of what works well is also a really important part of research. And that's transformative for the individual, that they can have more effective rehabilitation or if their breathlessness can be dealt with, if end of life can be dealt with much more effectively, that's very important for the individual. And then we went from the practicality on the ground back into the stratosphere with the absolutely astonishing work from Ed Silverman, who represented the COPD Gene Consortium. That's a molecular epidemiology of COPD project that's been running for a decade. It's uh, now what, 10, years, 10 years into its research, using the best possible genetic analysis to find genes for susceptibility to COPD linking those with imaging of the lung and actually developing new imaging methods and looking at lung function trajectories and um, amazing learnings from that. Six new genes that are linked to COPD pathogenesis and it comes full circle back to Australian research, interestingly enough. So Shaimali Damage's work on lifelong cohorts, the work from Perth on lifelong cohorts, all links in because the main genes that have come out of COPD gene are actually lung development genes, the genes that give you small lungs or large lungs. And the main influence on those are in development for the, for the embryo during or, or early life. And so this brings us back from the stratosphere of high-end molecular genomics to really practical public health advocacy around clean air, because dirty air gives you small lungs and then injures your lungs. And maternal smoking does that and social disadvantage does that. So this gives an evidence base for really practical things now 
and also opens the door for new molecular strategies in the future to help keep lungs healthy for longer. So I have to say, incredibly exciting start to the meeting. You know, I had the honour of interviewing Professor Damaji after she was awarded the TSANZ Research Medal last year and her work on the early life origins of COPD and the impact of childhood disadvantage on lung health marked a real turning point in COPD research. And Gary, I imagine there are huge implications for this kind of work to inform social and economic policy reform that could potentially change the trajectory of lung health outcomes for future generations. So I think in our political world in Australia, the political sphere is very open to doing the right thing, but it needs to be evidence-based and it needs to be based on a consensus around the evidence and the interventions that are recommended need to be real world and practical. So condensing all of this high-end molecular science back down to what it means now for simple decisions around air quality, air standards, building standards, um, social benefit and social justice, disadvantaged populations is how you can take the, the promise of the future with the molecular stuff and ground it back to the interventions now. And I think that's why our opening symposium was so good. It was high-end concept, realised, practical healthcare delivery now, and then a vision of the molecular future, but all wraps back together into how we use science to inform better policy. So that's a very, very important role for our society. Now, of course, you closed that session talking about the prospect of remission and cure. How close are we to that? Yeah, so, you know, um, if you look to the history of lung medicine, it really came out of dealing with tuberculosis and end-stage disease. And there's always been a certain nihilism, I think, in our field that you can't change disease trajectories. But at the same time, so many good people in the lung area have brought their expertise to pull the problems apart and to think, well, we really shouldn't start our treatment of COPD patients in their 70s because the disease starts much earlier. Let's, let's, uh, let's get the science clear on that. And then let's think about how we can bring benefit earlier through screening, cessation strategies, exposure strategies, and also molecular strategies. And so the whole of life work that Shai Millie has driven for so long, the, um, the work on paediatrics, the work on COPD and asthma really informs these types of strategies. And so we can start to move our ambition just from late stage symptom control to true disease modification. And once you get that in your mind, that immediately demands, let's go back even further and think about preventions and cures. And our field internationally is now doing that. And Australians are really at the table involved in those discussions that will change things in a big way for the future. It'll take a long time but if you don't do it, it doesn't happen. And the great thing is it is happening and we're doing it. Yeah. And one of the things that was apparent throughout the conference was that integration of the science and the clinical within each of the sessions. Was that a deliberate move? Yeah. So this was really stems from an initiative um, to improve the content in the European Respiratory Society. Some years ago, I was working with Professor Sir Stephen Holgate now, Professor Sir Stephen Holgate. And we took the view that when you had a clinical session, it would be always good to include some basic science. And for the basic science sessions, they really need to have a clinical perspective, either on the introduction or the close. So that actually became an informal policy that all the sessions should be translational, bringing basic and clinical together. And I think doing that makes things much more relevant to everyone. Basic scientists can learn about what the actual clinical problems are 
and clinical colleagues can see all the exciting molecular science that's offering the possibility of these disease modifying and curative strategies, which are still a long way away, but the more we work together, the earlier they will come to patients. And I think that's a very strong aspect of our society that we have such depth and breadth of expertise in our basic scientists, our respiratory scientists, our physicians, our primary carers, our nurses, our physiotherapists, all represented. Thanks, Gary. And we should mention too that all of the session recordings will be available to view on demand online for the next six months. We'll leave the links to those pages on our site too. Now I'd like to bring Lucy in here. Lucy is the Infectious Disease Special Interest Group convener. Lucy, welcome. Tell us about some of the sessions that captured your attention. Well, I was actually lucky to chair several symposia and this is my last year as the Infectious Diseases convener. So it's been a a bit of a ride this last year, as you can imagine, normally quite a quiet stick. So I was in obviously all of the infectious diseases ones, which were obviously very topical and, and really interesting. Um, we had four infectious diseases symposia this year, two of them on COVID, not surprisingly. Um, I think one of our uh, really good talks was by Professor Kanta Subararo. So she presented on COVID-19 virology and vaccines. And it was a really fascinating talk and she gave a really clear explanation of vaccine progress. Um, and I think uh, the highlight for me was really her clear discussion of, of how we've managed to make vaccines so quickly because um, everybody's worried that we rush this. But, but in particular, um, we were really able to apply our learning from SARS and MERS and even down to determining that actually it was a spike protein that is the target of, of vaccine, of what how we should make vaccines. Um, and also there have been lots and lots of changes in how we undertake clinical trials so that we can somewhat do the clinical trials phases almost simultaneously. So just as you're getting data for the phase one, you can start the phase two. And lots of ethics institutions around the world are um, working more towards getting trials through quicker by but still doing the same steps. So, so I thought that was uh, really interesting. And also a lot of the manufacturers, particularly in COVID, are making the vaccine at risk. So they, they're starting the manufacturing even in the early phases of the study in the hope that that will become a vaccine. And, and so of course they're taking that, that risk as well. So I think that's probably why we've got them. For me, that was quite reassuring that we haven't really cut any corners in vaccine development for this vaccine, um, which was nice to hear. Um, she also touched a little bit on the aerosol versus droplet debate. And where did the debate land? There's still so much people don't know and don't agree on about this. That, that's right, that's right. And, and it's actually really hard to study. And I, I think that's the problem and where the debate is. And then how you put that into the context of the patient in front of you is quite challenging as well. And so I, I think, you know, we've seen super, spread, super spreader events. So we must have some form of, um, uh, what's the right word? Probably aerosol might not be the right word. It might be, you know, very small droplet airflow dependent spread. <laughs> um, and, we, and we probably need a better word in, in between. Um, but, but it is important to, to sort of understand, you know, all the, the, the potentials of that. But, but I think then you've got to balance that against what really is the risk and in what situation is there risk. Um, and I think that's where it's just really hard because um, it's not just opinion. It's just it's, an, it's a totally evidence-free zone. There, there's lots of modelling and there's lots of observational studies and case reports, but you, you just can't do a trial on this to try and understand um, and really then it comes down to, you know, engineering controls around that particular patient, PPE. But, but uh, you know, I, I, I think um, being binary, I, I think is probably unhelpful. Um, and, I, and I think we probably need to move on from, 
from a, from a binary debate. And Lucy, there was also a lot of interest in the discussion on the management of fungal lung disease and non-tuberculous mycobacteria. Tell us about these. So I think both of those sessions really highlighted to me, um, although probably not a surprise to most people, is just how hard fungal lung infection and non-tuberculous mycobacteria are really to diagnose and to treat. Um, but we had um, some really good speakers in, in both of those as well. So Professor Monica Slavin um, updated us on new diagnostic approaches for the diagnosis of invasive aspergillus disease. Um, so we can move more cases into the probable diagnosis without having to biopsy to prove inf invasion. And I think the take home message for me on that one, which was, it was quite disappointing in, in a sense, but um, yielding um, or isolating fungus from a bronchoscopy uh, is probably only about 50% hit rate. So um, we discussed how we could maybe improve the yields in bronchoscopy. And, and she talked about trying to ensure getting a clean catch of the lower airways um, and the impact that being on prophylaxis can have on your yields as well. And so, Lucy, what helps in terms of getting that clean catch? Yeah, well, that's the difficult thing, I think, because inherently with a bronchoscopy, you go through the oral cavity. And so it's pretty common to pick up candida and other fungi. Um, and then, you know, what do you do with that? Do you ignore that in an immunocompromised person? Do you treat that? Do, do you consider that as a pathogen? And, um, and it actually can be quite, quite hard. Um, the, the discussion goes on. I'm not sure that there's any straight answers to that as well, but I think ongoing um, working with the anaesthetists and um, improving bronchoscopic techniques can certainly help there as well. Um, so finally, I think uh, the last session, again, that was uh, very well attended was the mycobacterial session. As this always, often when there's, it's live, it's often standing room only. I think because we all find this just such a challenge to treat, really complicated diagnostic processes, um, sort of putting that in the context of the patient who might have other bacteria in their lungs and really what's causing disease. Um, different um, concerns with um, identify, identification within the lab as well. And then the treatment of it is, is quite challenging and can be quite prolonged as well. And so the treatment um, discussion was presented as a series of case studies, is that right? Um, quite complex cases, actually, and, and, and challenging, um, but um, brought in, you know, some, some different ways or different thoughts of how to do that. Um, and we had an expert panel that um, just gave their opinions on, on what, to, what to do in each situation. So in particular, Andrew Burke gave us um, a really good update on mycobacterium abscessus and where we're at with that. And certainly uh, there's a new trial that's um, coming out across Australia. So it's open in a couple of sites at the moment and further sites will be open in Australia, um, which puts some uh, data um, or some structure around how we treat abscesses. So you can enroll your patients into one of the arms of those trials, which will be exciting. Um, and then the really interesting and exciting one was um, Associate Professor Paul Robinson. So he's a paediatrician at Westmead in Sydney. Um, he had a really complicated cystic fibrosis patient uh, with mycobacterial infection as well. And he used some really weird and wacky treatments, um, particular nitric oxide um, and uh, phage therapy, which um, are both experimental therapies, but seem to seem to work quite well in, in his patients. So I guess watch this space for more studies and trials on, on those particular therapies. And so, Lissy, what were some of the main practice points you took away from the conference? Um, for me, in particular, probably the NTM session. Um, there were lots of real useful clinical pearls in there. It's just so hard. Um, and 
you know that that debate as to what to treat what to treat with I think probably being a bit more confident with more aggressive treatment regimens is probably where I'm moving to um, um, and having having a strategy for the known side effects that you're going to get from from the quite intense antibiotics. Um, but I think um, that decision to treat can be hard and I, I think it's just try not to do it on your own definitely get expert help. Um, you know, all of our panelists, I'm sure, would be very happy to have an email or, or quite happy to give advice over the phone um, if you're struggling with when to treat. And then I think just bite the bullet and really go for it. Go home or go hard or go home. <laughs> Thanks, Lucy. Some great highlights there from the infectious diseases sessions. Now, providing some highlights from the ANZ respiratory science side of things is Danny. Danny, great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. My pleasure to be here. Danny, you presented data on your team's work looking at lung function abnormalities following recovery from COVID infections. What have been your findings there? Yeah, so um, we did uh, sort of two separate cohorts. So their first wave of information we had was our first wave of patients that came through Victoria in sort of March to June of 2020. Um, and we had sort of relative, we had about 30 patients with follow-up lung function. And fewer of them had lung function abnormalities uh, after about eight weeks after they'd recovered from COVID than we would have expected. So there was only sort of three or four, there was about three or four patients that had some, some um, residual lung function abnormalities at eight weeks after recovery from COVID. And then in that same group at the six month mark, um, there was almost none of them that had residual lung function abnormalities. So that was interesting because um, there was some other data from other countries showing that they found sort of higher rates of lung function abnormalities after COVID. Um, some of their studies were done almost uh, at the time the patient was discharged from hospital, whereas we, were, we had waited eight weeks after they had recovered. So potentially whether you know those, pe those people that they found abnormalities in a discharge, they may well have um, had some sort of recovery over that intervening eight-week period. Um, we also had some data from our second wave of patients, which in Victoria was sort of, you know, July through to October, November of 2020. And we selected a, a, a sicker cohort of patients, so patients that needed higher level of care. Um, and we found higher rates of abnormalities in those people. So again, out of about 30 people, about half of them had some sort of lung function abnormality at the at eight weeks after they'd recovered. Um, we are still collecting the six month data on that group of patients. So it'll be interesting to see whether they maybe have just taken a lot longer to recover. But um, anecdotally, I think a few of them have still got lung function abnormalities at, at about the six month mark. And were you able to see what that looks like clinically? Most of them still have got symptoms of some description. And um, some of them, you know, it, it's probably more like a pneumonia type illness. So, you know, some of them I think maybe recover, but some of them who have this illness obviously have some sort of residual uh, impact on their lung function. And it would be interesting to chase up what that looks like. So the, the research I did was part of a, a larger study where they've got, you know, there's lots of other things that are being followed in this group of people. So hopefully in sort of the, the other imaging and blood tests, there's probably some more information about what exactly is going on in this group of people. Now, you also co-chaired the panel discussion on where we're at with implementing the Global Lung Function Initiative equations into clinical practice. Tell us about this. Yeah, so this is really exciting. So these, um, the Global Lung Function Initiative 
It's a great collaboration of um, scientists across the world uh, who really sort of altruistically put in all of this data, have done all this work to try and come up with some uh, really widely applicable prediction equations for lung function. And in 2012, they published some uh, spirometry of prediction equations, which is by far and away the most commonly test, commonly performed lung function test. Uh, in 2017, they produced equations for um, carbon monoxide transfer factor. And only in the last couple of months, they've published uh, data on some equations for lung volume measurements as well. So these are probably three of the most common lung function tests that are done in labs. And you know, once these things are published, it's really important that we you know, try and see how quickly they can become adopted in, in laboratories so that it really does add another level of standardization to the way tests are interpreted. Um, so certainly, you know, the 2012 spirometry equations, I think, are now quite widely used. Um, the two, 2017 um, carbon monoxide transfer factor equations, you know, they're becoming much more common. Uh, the lung volume equations, which have only just been published, you know, imagine these sort of things take quite often take, you know, a year or two to become, uh, you know, more widely utilised. And that's partly because, uh, you know, the, the companies that produce the lung function testing equipment need to upgrade their software and, you know, rewrite code to include these equations into their software packages. But it's, um, it's a really exciting initiative that, you know, brings together scientists from all across the world working towards sort of a common cause for good. And Danny, there was also some discussion about the impact of ethnicity on prediction equations. So um, most of these prediction equations have been gathered collecting using data from Caucasians. And in the spirometry equations, there's some data from other ethnic groups that's in included in there, and they're able to produce some different equations. But for carbon monoxide transfer factor and lung volumes, they didn't have enough data on non-Caucasians to produce different equations. So there was some interesting discussion between you know, the physiologists and the clinicians as well about how, it, how it's a little bit more challenging and difficult to interpret you know, carbon monoxide transfer factor and lung volume measurements where we haven't got equations that are necessarily applicable to non-Caucasians. And so what's the magnitude of difference here? You know, the differences in spirometry between Caucasians and non-Caucasians, uh, you know, are of the order of sort of, you know, 10% or 5%. So they're not huge differences, but they are, you know, they, it can mean the difference between somebody being normal and abnormal. So it's something worth considering. And so it is a really challenging thing to have how to deal with this. Um, and particularly if you, you know, I think in some places you test quite a large number of non-Caucasians, uh, even in, you know, even in Australia and New Zealand, in some areas, there are significant numbers of people that are tested that are non-Caucasian. And is that a gap the GLI will eventually close? Yeah, uh, so another great question. And that's, uh, th I think that's what the hope, the GLI group has actually set up a repository where people can add more results and more information as they, as it comes to hand. So hopefully as more and more of these normal value studies are conducted, there'll be more and more non-Caucasian data added to that repository. And then hopefully we can create these prediction equation in non-Caucasians. The difficulty is though, is that these equations are not necessarily, or this, these studies are not necessarily funded or pushed by anybody. And the GLI group, it's a, you know, effectively a volunteer organization. So there's not really a, a targeted program to get this information, but hopefully as more of this is done, it will be added to that repository and we'll be able to create some data in non-Caucasians. 
Well, thank you to all my guests today, Professor Gary Anderson, Associate Professor Lucy Burr and Danny Brazell. I hope you enjoyed this conference highlights episode. If you did, please give us a review or a like on your podcast app. And from the Limbic, I'm Sonali Silva. Thanks so much for your time. I hope you'll join me on the next podcast. <laughs>